right, thanks for downloading Cross Defense. Glad you're a podcast listener. We take up two questions in this episode. What does the Bible teach about angels? Explore when they were created. What's the difference between the good and evil angels and all that sort of stuff? And we also talk, I got a question from someone about how could we possibly be Lutheran? After all, didn't Luther say that Jesus was an adulterer? We look at the Luther quote, we look at a couple other passages, we talk about the theology of it, and we see the glorious gospel that's there uh, underneath the slander. Thanks for being a podcast listener. Here's the show. Welcome to Cross Defense. Hey, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here, pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Death Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas, joining you every week to... What do we try to do here? We try to excite the mind with theology. The devil is always tempting us to be bored with theology. How, can you imagine being bored with theology? I mean, come on, it's the best. And the devil comes along and says, ah, it's boring stuff for old guys, you know, whatever. We're, gonna, we're fighting back the devil here. This is spiritual warfare, being excited and joyful about our theology. We're gonna, I think this is what we're going to do today. We gotta, I got a question here about the angels. What does the Bible teach about the angels? We'll do that the first segment. Second segment... This is interesting. I got an email saying, I can't believe you call yourself Lutheran. I got a lot of emails, actually, just the last couple of weeks saying, I can't believe you call yourself a Lutheran. That Luther guy, it's mostly by a bunch of Roman Catholics. So that Luther guy, he just wanted to become Lutheran so he could get married. And I mean, my response is, is that really what? Anyway, I got an I got a email here. How can you call yourself Lutheran? Didn't Luther teach that Jesus was an adulterer? So we're going to look at that common accusation. That's a bit of a mess. And then if we have time, we'll talk about the, the Sanctus in the service. But I'm not sure if we're going to have to. We never, we never have enough time in the show. I don't know. One hour goes so quick. That's what we're up to. So first question, what does the Bible teach about, uh, what does the Bible teach about angels? This is, a, I, this is a really interesting question because I don't know if you've noticed this. Now, I don't think it's as popular nowadays as it used to be a couple of decades ago, but angels are everywhere. You go to like the bookstore and there's all this stuff about angels. There's the, the you know, your, there's ways to get a, a hold of your angel guide. People talk about that all the time. There's, uh, there, there's uh, these common myths inside the church and outside the church about, in fact, you'll hear this a lot of times when someone dies and they'll say, oh, now they're an angel in heaven, as if that's what happens. Like, we're just angels trapped in bodies, and then once we die, we get to, we, we fly away and we come, become angels. Now, that's one of the maybe the first things we want to know about what the Bible says about angels. And it says that angels are angels and people are people, that they're totally different creatures. In fact, this is a really wonderful passage where where Hebrews is making the argument that Jesus is better than the angels. It talks about how Jesus became a human being to redeem human beings. He didn't become an angel to redeem the angels. So so people, humans, and angels are completely different creatures. That's a that's a thing that the Bible says about it. But we want to uh, kind of walk through this and 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 handle the biblical teaching about angels. Um and to know what we can about the angels, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we need to know. Uh, or, or let me say it like this: the Bible doesn't maybe tell us everything that we want to know about the angels, but it does tell us everything that we need to know uh, about the angels, and it's good to to consider it. Now, I'm going to pull some stuff out. I got this little book called Angels and Demons, a Bible study anthology that we published oh a couple of years ago for a Bible class, and I just grabbed it. Has a handful of sections from different books about the angels. I'll try to 
Um, if you search Angels and Demons Wolf Mueller on Google, I'm sure you'll find it. And you can download it for free. The PDF is available. But here's a couple of things. Number one, when were the angels created? Now, the Bible does not address the creation of angels specifically, but it does call them God's creatures so that we know that they were created by God. And we know that when God was creating things, at least this is all the, how the old uh, theologian talks about it, that it happened in the hexagameron. That means the first six days of creation when the Lord was creating everything. And so sometime in those six days, the Lord created the angelic host. Now, probably it was very early in the creation of everything because Job talks about how the angels are singing with glory as they watch the Lord create everything. And it's very quickly after the creation that the devil has already fallen and comes to tempt Adam and Eve. So very early in the six days of creation, God made the multitude of angels. Now, here's the definition or the nature of angels. And here's where it gets kind of interesting. Angels are finite spirits. I'm reading from outlines of doctrinal theology here. Angels are finite spirits without bodies and complete in their spiritual nature. They are personal rational and moral beings of great but limited wisdom and power and they are arranged in various ranks and orders so for example psalm 104 verse 4 the lord makes his angels spirits and that's one of the this is where i wish we had a whiteboard it's hard to have a whiteboard on radio but here's but you can imagine that i'm teaching and i'm writing on the board the two words angel and spirit because these two words are describing the same things but one is according to office and the other is according to nature the word angel both in the hebrew malach and in the greek angelos means simply messenger so someone who brings you the news so like a a newspaper uh, delivery man would be an angelos or someone who reports the news on tv would be an angelos a pastor they, the pastors are called angeloses in revelation chapters two and three in the letters to the seven churches so a messenger is an office it's a work but spirit refers to the being or the nature of the angels so they are uh, they are finite spirits they don't have bodies they're complete in their spiritual nature now this is in distinction to human beings because we are body and spirit both that we have to have both of those united together but the angels are just spirits and so they're complete as spirits they're personal, rational, and moral, that the angels are, in fact, individuals. And this is an interesting thing for us to remember, that the angels have actual um, names, that each one of them is an individual. They're not just sort of, it's not like the clone army, like you're watching Star Wars, and they're all just the same. No, that each individual angel is unique and personal and moral, and that they have great but limited power. In fact, I'm going to flip over and read some of the attributes of the angels because this gets one of my, my most favorite things to talk about. From the nature of angels as spiritual beings, there follows, and now I'm reading from the, uh, the doctrine of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, uh, that says this, the attributes of indivisibility, invisibility, immutability, immobility, eternal duration, illocality, definitive ubiety, and agility <laughs> this is the last one is that the angels are very very fast but one of the important things for us to remember is that even though the angels are not they don't have bodies that doesn't mean that they're everywhere they are of finite location so this is especially helpful when we remember for example 
the devil, who can't be everywhere at once like the Lord can. He can move around very quickly, but he is limited to a particular place. Okay. So that's the nature of the angels. Uh, a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have, says Jesus in Luke chapter 24, verse 39. And so we know that the angels are like that. They're spirits that do not have flesh and bone and so forth. Now, what about the, the number of the angels? We want to say that the angels, being sexless, do not propagate their kind, and being also immortal and incorruptible, their number is neither increased nor diminished. That's how the old dogmatician said it. And they take their cue from Jesus, who says in Matthew 22, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. So that the, when the Lord created the angels, there was a fixed number of those angels. And it stays. They don't have little angel families and little angel babies. Uh, despite what you see at Hallmark, you know, oh, they, this is the, the cherub, you know, the little floaty, like, the little chubby floaty babies with wings and... That's not how the, they don't have little angel babies. Uh, here's what uh, Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, verse 36. Neither can they die anymore. They are equal unto the angels. Luke 20, verse 36. Now, as soon as we start to study the angels, one of the things that comes up very quickly is that there are two categories of angels. There are the good angels and there are the bad ones or the evil angels, what we sometimes refer to as the demons or the devils. Now, they are not distinct creatures. The angels that we normally talk about, the good angels, are those angels who retained their office, but the evil angels are those who followed after the devil and after his example, and they fell. So the Bible says about the good angels this, all angels were created perfectly good and holy, but a part only of their number remained in their original state. So, the, uh, so that the Lord has his holy angels, or what are called in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, his elect angels. For example, Paul says, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. So the angels are there as God's chosen ones, these good ones and holy ones and so forth. They are God's elect angels. And they are confirmed in their state of good. It's a common question. This is nice to have the theological answer to it. Because we know that some of the, all the angels were created good, some of them fell, but does that happen often? Like, are there good angels that go bad? Do we say, well, I have a guardian angel? At least the kids, according to Matthew 18, uh, and where Jesus talks about it, the kids have an angel appointed to them who also beholds the face of God in heaven. That maybe adults do, I don't know, maybe we, at some point, the angels are kind of loosened up on their guardianship. We don't know that from the scriptures, but we say, well, what about my guardian angel? Is he going to flip and go to the bad side or something like this? Well, no. We say that, that that moment of, I don't know, confirmation of, of faithfulness or goodness was locked in, that there was a, that there was a moment in time when the angels were going to stick with the Lord or go with the devil. And that once that happened, it's locked in. And the theological language that's used for that is the confirmed state. The, conf the confirmed state of the good angels. Here it says, those angels who persevered in their, prime, uh, in their primeval state were in accordance with divine election, confirmed in holiness, and in the enjoyment of everlasting bliss and communion with God in a state of glory. Matthew 18 is mentioned here in reference to this. In heaven, their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. 
or Matthew 25, verse 31. The Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him. Or, uh, let's see, oh yeah, the same. Neither can they die anymore, they're equal to angels. Luke 20, the same passage. It's confirmed. Now, on the other hand, the evil angels, oh, sorry, before we move on to the evil angels, let's just talk about what the good angels do. The occupation of the good angels, the good angels serve God in worshiping him, in doing his pleasure, in executing his commandments and his messenger, as his messengers and ministers for the promotion of his purposes, especially in the church and for the protection and guidance of the heirs of salvation. So, for example, Psalm 103, verse 21, which is quoted also in Hebrews, says, Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, you ministers of his that do his pleasure. So the angels in heaven do the pleasure of the Lord. You want a couple more verses? Okay, I'll give you a couple more. Uh, how about this? Matthew one twenty. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife. Or Matthew 28, verse 2. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. Matthew 4, verse 11. This is talking about Jesus, who was in the, in the wilderness and being tempted to all sorts of stuff. And then the devil left him for a time. And it says, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So the angels are the Lord's ministers. Hebrews 1.14, probably the clearest passage on him. On the angel says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? There it is right there. So the angels are serving at the Lord's good pleasure for the sake of the church. Now, this is an amazing sort of thing. In fact, it's probably one of the reasons why the devil fell in the beginning is because this the angels were put into this position of service and ministry. And the devil uh, was puffed up with pride, couldn't stand it. Now, on the other hand, there are the evil angels, and we want to talk about those here as well. Uh, let's see. A multitude of angels left their first estate, and making the beginning of sin, became evil spirits, or devils, demons, with perverted and depraved intellectual and moral faculties. This is where the, the, the business of the devil comes in. Now, how many of the angels fell? It's a mystery. How many of the angels became evil spirits? I think the best we can do for, for numbers-wise or percentage-wise comes to us in Revelation chapter 12, where it says that the dragon swept a third of the stars and brought them down with him. So, so from this, we th this is where the, the text comes from, that, that we think that the devil brought a third of the, of the angels and they all fell and became demons. Here's a couple Bible passages about the demons. Mark 5, verse 9, Jesus asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Remember, these are the, the guy that was in the, living out there in the, in the tombs. Oh, man, can you imagine? And he had so many demons living inside of him. He, would, he was living naked, and he would break chains if they tried to put him on. And Boy, Jesus rescues him, and all the demons run into the pigs, and they throw themselves in the ocean. Jude chapter 6. The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he has reserved for everlasting chains. Or how about this? First John 3, 8. He who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the very beginning. Second Peter 2, 4. God spared not the angels that sinned. We see, especially in the ministry of Jesus, that he is dealing with the demons and the devil. In fact, while we see demons earlier in the Bible, 
early in the in the Old Testament. I mean, in, throughout the Old Testament, and also later uh, in the New Testament, it, it's especially concentrated around Jesus. And why? I think you want to think of Jesus as almost like a like a a lamp, uh, a street lamp in June. And all the bugs are just clustering around. So when Jesus comes, when Jesus descends and he's incarnate and he's walking around doing ministry, that all the evil is drawn to him like a moth to the flame. And there he is rescuing people from darkness and from the devil. It's really quite amazing. In fact, that's the promise from the beginning, Genesis 3.15, that this son of Eve would crush the, the, the serpent under his feet. Just like the good angels, the evil angels are confirmed in their state of evil. The evil angels were, by the just judgment of God, condemned to everlasting punishment and confirmed in a state of wrath. It says here, First Second Peter 2, 4, God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. So that these angels are condemned angels. Now, what is their work, the occupation of the evil angels, and what does the Bible say about that? Well, we'll talk about that after the break. That'll be something to come back for. We've got to have a quick break here, uh, and then we'll be back to talk about the work of the evil angels and then and, and what we can do about it, how the kingdom of God relates to the kingdom of darkness and so forth. We'll pull a couple of those scriptures together, and then we'll take up this question of Luther at the calling Jesus an adulterer. What was that all about? Well, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Chapel serves those who serve the Lord to be receivers of the Word and to remember where our true help is found. Hear God's Word read, preached, confessed, and sung in the broadcast of Daily Chapel from the LCMS International Center in St. Louis weekdays at 10 a.m. on KFUO. The broadcast of Chapel is underwritten by LCMS International Mission and Ministry to the Armed Forces. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. St. Paul's Lutheran Church de Pere invites you to a service of sacred music featuring St. Paul's choirs, handbells, and orchestra on Saturday, December 7th at 5 p.m. and Sunday, December 8th at 4 p.m. Pre-service music will begin 20 minutes before the program. May your hearts be filled with peace and joy as you hear the word of God proclaimed in word and song, the Savior Jesus Christ was born for you. Did you know that many LCMS military personnel and their families are unable to receive word and sacrament ministry due to the lack of LCMS chaplains? Ministry to the Armed Forces is looking for pastors who will answer the call to serve as a chaplain to provide word and sacrament ministry to the men and women who selflessly serve our nation. Find out more about this exciting ministry by contacting me, Chaplain Craig Mueller, at lcmschaps at lcms.org. That is lcmschaps at lcms.org. Did you know that your individual retirement account may make the best gift to KFUO? The IRS now allows individuals 70 and a half or older to transfer their required minimum distribution directly to charity and avoid paying the associated income tax. These gifts can provide regular long-term resources to KFUO. If you have questions about making an IRA gift to KFUO, call me, Mary, at 314-996-1518. We'll send a representative out to help answer your questions and help you establish a legacy of giving to your favorite radio station, Worldwide KFUO. Now, now. 
Welcome back to Cross Defense. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here talking about angels and demons. What does the Bible teach about angels? We talked about how angels are spirits, how they are bodiless creatures. They're complete without their body, that they exist eternally. They were created by God, that at some moment at the very beginning, and we don't know exactly what caused this fall, but Paul warns us. He says, remember what he's writing to, he's writing to Timothy, and he says, don't lay on hands too quickly. Uh, lest, so don't make a guy a pastor too quick, lest he be puffed up with pride and fall, come into the same condemnation as the devil. So that the devil's essential sin is pride. And all the demons join with him and they fall and the, they come and assault the church. In fact, I was reading here, this is in um, Mueller's Dogmatics, where he writes, The fury of the evil angels is directed especially against the church of Christ, for they, A, constantly seek to destroy it by their onslaughts in general, Matthew 16 and 18, or 16, 18. And by trying to prevent hearers from accepting the word of God, Luke 8, that has to do with the devil snatching up the word before it's heard, parable of the sower. Spread false doctrine, Matthew 13, 1 Timothy 4. And incite persecution against the kingdom of Christ, Revelation 12. In particular, Satan has wrought unspeakable harm in the church by inflicting upon it the tyranny of doctrinal perversions of the Antichrist, 2 Thessalonians 2. For the purpose of ruining the church, the devil also troubles the political state and the domestic state. Remember, there's three estates, church, family, and, and state. And the devil, it says, specifically to trouble the church, also goes after the home and the state. The devil, says Luther in a famous place, is not content for us to sit at home and eat a bite of bread in peace. He wants to destroy everything, everything that's good. This is this why, by the way, I mean, to r just recognize that we're in constantly a, a, a spiritual battle. All of us are. We're, the devil has considered us as enemies. And he's coming and he's fighting against us. And he is not content for us to hear the word of God. But he's not content for us to have a breath of clean air. He's not He's not content for us to have a cup of coffee in the morning. He's not content for for us to enjoy any of the Lord's good gifts, especially the gifts of salvation, but even the gifts of creation. The devil is fighting against all of it constantly. And and he finds a, an ally in the world and an ally even in our own sinful flesh. So the devil's fighting against all these sorts of things. The text, by the way, the devil troubles the political estate, First Chronicles 21, First Kings 22, and how the devil assaults the domestic estate, the family, First Timothy 4, First Corinthians 7, Job chapter 1, etc. The scriptures, now this is interesting, the scripture teaches also that God employs the evil angels to punish the wicked for their rejection of the truth, Second Thessalonians 2, and to test or try the faithful, Job chapter 1, Second Corinthians 12. So remember how it was with Job. I mean, can you imagine Job, who just had a really bad day? I mean, everything he has is lost, including his children. And then the next day, his health is lost. He's sitting there on a on a ash heap, scraping the sores on his head with a piece of broken pottery, mourning the loss of everything. And we saw how it happened. Here the devil comes to, the Satan comes to the Lord and, and says, what about Job? And Man. I mean, it's one of these things. I mean, this is just kind of practical theology, is that when you're sitting in the middle of some sort of Job moment, when everything's falling apart, and, and you can't tell if this came from the devil or from the Lord, well, this is the point, you can't tell. I mean, did, did, did Job, did Job sit there and say, well, this all came from the, de the devil did it, not the Lord. 
In fact, his wife says, curse God and die. And, and he says to his wife, should we not receive, can we receive good from the Lord and not evil? Should we not receive both? In fact, now, now how about this? It could be true that, that God and the devil are cooperating in your difficulties and in your trouble. And you just can't, you can't, you can't pry them apart. The devil wants to, to give you all sorts of trouble because he hates you. God hands you over to tribulation because he loves you. The devil is tempting you because he wants you to lose your faith. The Lord is testing you because he wants your faith to be strengthened. So they have different sources and they have different goals. But when you're in the middle of it, you can't tell the difference. And how frustrating must it be for the devil when, when he brings all this affliction on the Christian and the Christian says, thank the Lord for this trouble. When, when the Lord even gets credit for the devil's work. It's kind of amazing. The Lord gives, says Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So there is this spiritual warfare that we fight when we don't blame things on the devil, but rather when we say the Lord's will be done, even in trouble. It's kind of amazing. Now, where were we? We were going to talk about something else. Oh, yeah, the, so the work of the evil angels, the occupation of the evil angels, as stated here, is this. The evil angels, being since their fall enemies of God and of his children, are under their princes, ever bent upon destroying the works of God, counteracting his purposes, doing and promoting evil, and, though subject to God's supreme dominion and control and confined within the bounds of his permission, they are in various ways occupied in strengthening their kingdom and exerting their power in the minds and bodies of men. So, for example, 1 Peter 5, 8, Your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, wanders around, seeking whom he can devour. Or Ephesians chapter 6, which is just a beautiful text. I mean, Ephesians 6, we should write in gold. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in the high places. Your battle, dear friend, is not against flesh and blood. That person that considers you an enemy, or the person that you consider an enemy... That is not your enemy. Your enemy is the devil and his demons. That is the only person, that the, the only beings that the Christian is able to uh, and is authorized to identify as our enemies. And our battle is against them. Depart from me. This is Jesus talking about the judgment on the last day, Matthew 25, verse 41. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's really something. How about this, Matthew 13? While men slept, the enemy came and sowed tares in the wheat and went away. But when, they, when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, it appeared as tares also. The tares are the children of the wicked one. So the devil is there trying to, trying to sow hypocrisy in the minds and the hearts of men. Hmm. John 13 tells us, now this is an interesting text. By the way, when we want to study how the devil actually works, and, and and let me just caution you a little bit here, that we don't want to, we don't, we do not want to investigate this topic beyond what the Scripture tells us. If the Bible tells us something specifically about how the devil works, then we, then we want to pay attention to it. We want to pay close attention to it. We want to believe what it says and hold to it. But we do not want to press beyond that. We do not want to start wandering around in these sorts of questions. There's darkness to be found there, and we want to avoid it. We want to put strict limits on it. We want to, this is one of our doctrine of sola scriptura, is that when we, we confess that when the Bible teaches us about this, that that is enough, and we don't need to know anymore. 
But here's a text that's very interesting to consider. John 13, verse 2, which says, The devil put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. So that the devil is able, according to God's will, to have access to our hearts and to put wicked thoughts in there. The devil is able to cultivate the temptations that are there inside of us. Ephesians 2, verse 2 says, The spirit that works in the children of disobedience. Or 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 says, Who's coming, talking about the Antichrist, is after the working of Satan, and so forth. So the devil and the demons are, are there and are always working against the people of God. Now, now what about spiritual possession? The Bible talks about, mm, sometimes when you find in the Bible, it, it talks about a, a person being possessed by the demons. The, the, the word there is demonized. There's no, there's no biblical phrase, demon possession. But we want to distinguish between two, maybe three or four different things here, but at least we'll do this, that there's a spiritual obsession and uh, a spiritual obsession and a physical obsession. Uh, and, and so the devil will, will, will try to rest our spirit and try to rest our body both. And the ancient teachers of the church would say that the devil has the spirits of all of the unbelievers. They are just in league. There's no fight there. But when we are baptized and when we belong to Jesus and when the Holy Spirit lives in us and is giving us f faith and trust in the Lord's word, then the devil has no power or authority over us spiritually. And yet he can, in his way, limited by God, come and afflict us in the body. We see people who were troubled by the demons and thrown into fires and things like this in the, in the, in the scriptures, and we confess that the devil uh, can still do those things. Now, one of the things that's just interesting to observe throughout history is that these sort of manifestations of demonic trouble seem, seem to come in waves or phases. So I was over in Madagascar a few years back, and the, the Lutheran church there, can you believe this? The Lutheran church in Madagascar, on the fifth Sundays of the month, they have exorcism services. They have regular people that are trained to be exorcists, and they're, they're working constantly to, to cast out the, the demons who are physically afflicting people. It seems like, in my perspective, that the devil has a different sort of strategy for North America. He's not trying to, to physically possess people, at least not in the same frequency as happens in other countries. And I've been a pastor for 15 years now, and I think probably two, three, three, maybe four times I thought I was dealing directly with a demon when I was dealing with someone, that, they, they had, that the demon had... Was was affecting them physically, uh, and it was a is a possession sort of circumstance. But it's pretty rare, I think, pretty rare in the United States. I don't wonder if, as people start getting more and more into the occult and all this sort of spiritualism, if that will increase as time goes on. But, but there you go. Now a couple more things about the devil. Uh, the the gospel, the first gospel, that was ever spoken and recorded for us, Genesis three fifteen was a sermon of God to the devil himself. Now this, I, I, I don't know if I, I even am beginning to grasp the significance of this. But the Lord, when he talked to Adam, he talked to Eve, and then he turns to the devil and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and your seed and her seed. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. And there the first 
gospel is the promise of the one the man born of a woman without the help of a man who would who would be killed but not but not a permanent fatal blow and in that being killed he would destroy eternally the devil and his offspring sin and death this beautiful promise but it's preached to the devil and the gospel is always always being preached against the devil, against his kingdom, that, that the Lord has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son whom he loves, giving us the forgiveness of sins. So that the gospel and the word of God is always in opposition to the devil and to his kingdom, to his will, and so forth. When we pray, thy will be done to the Lord, we're praying that the will of the devil and the world of the flesh would not be done. And, and we'll end on this point, we want to rejoice that the death of Jesus is the triumph of, over the devil. So that Colossians, Paul says in Colossians, he made a public spectacle of the demons, conquering them in the cross. Jesus tells the parable about the one who binds the strong man so that he can, he can steal all his stuff. And that parable is told directly against the devil. Or Hebrews 2 beautifully says that just as we have flesh and blood, he partook of the same so that through his death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil. So that James tells us that we resist the devil and he flees from us. Imagine that he, the devil, flees from you. So that rather than, than, than the Bible telling us to flee from the devil, there's other things that the Bible tells us to free, flee from, like f flee from false doctrine, Flee sexual immorality. Flee idolatry. This is, this is The Bible tells us to flee a lot of things. The Bible does not tell us to flee the devil, but to stand and to resist him. Armed not in our own righteousness, but armed in his righteousness. Armed with his spirit. Armed with his word. And when we stand, the devil actually flees from us. So that there's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, I, this is the picture I was like, I, have I told you guys this before? If you can imagine that you're hiring someone to be afraid of and they're all lined up there and Jesus is sitting next to you advising you and, and, the, and all these things come and say, hey, I want, I want the job. I want you to be afraid of me. So here's death. Death stares us down. I want you to be afraid of me. And we say, wow, you are frightful. And we look to Jesus and he says, nope, destroyed it. And then the devil comes and he says, I want you to be afraid of me. I want the job. You should fear me. We look at Jesus and he says, Nope. Destroyed him. And there's sin and there's trouble and there's all this, there's death. I mean, we, oh yeah, we had death. There's a grave. There's uh, poverty. There's shame, whatever. They, they all come and they apply for the job. You should be afraid of me. And we look to Jesus and he says, nope, nope, nope. Nobody's hired. There's no one hired except for Jesus. You're the only one. So finally we said, well, Jesus, you're the only one left. I guess I should fear you. You're the only one to fear. And Jesus looks at us and he says, don't be, don't be afraid. I, I love you. I died on the cross for you. I forgave your sins. It's beautiful. So we fear, love, and trust in God above all things, nothing else, including the devil. It's not biblical to fear the devil. In fact, it's considered idolatry to fear him. Jesus says, don't fear the one who can destroy your body, but the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And that is only, only God can do that. Only he is the judge. So we fear him alone and, and not the devil. So that's what the Bible says about the angels. I'd love your questions on that. If you have them, the best way to send them to me is to, you know, the website, wolfmuller.co. There's a contact button on the top of the website, and you can click that button. I think that's how this question got here. So thanks, thanks for sending it. That's also how the next question got here, which is a question about Martin Luther.
calling Jesus an adulterer. I got. I maybe we'll make this little conversation into a video as well because there's a lot. Man, oh man, is there a lot of stuff about Luther out there? And people say, how can you call yourself a Lutheran? How can you follow? In fact, I was having this conversation last night. Someone said, you call yourself a Lutheran? That's like following after a man. And I said, well, do you know how the name started? And they said, no. And I said, well, it was it was written down by the Pope. It was in the in the first bull warning of Luther's excommunication where it made Luther an outlaw and it made everyone who followed Luther an outlaw. It banned Luther's books and it called the people who read his books and believed what he said, it called them Lutherans. The, if, when the Lutherans were inventing names for themselves, they called themselves the evangelicals, the, the, the gospelers. The gospel clingers, the ones who, who stuck to the Lord's word, especially the promise of forgiveness of sins. But, but here comes the insult. Oh, you're Lutherans. You follow Luther. And uh, they said, well, if that's what you're going to call us, then we'll just take it. We'll, we'll embrace it. They never liked it. But it was an insult that they said, if, that's, if what it means is to, is, to, is to cling to the clarity of the forgiveness of sins and to trust as our sole authority the scriptures, then fine, we'll take it. So they, t they took the name Luther. It's not following a man for sure. I mean, Luther was a sinner. Of all people, he was a sinner. We don't consider him to be a saint, to be prayed to or venerated or anything else like this. The only helpfulness that, that Luther brings to us is that he would point us to Christ and to the clarity of scriptures, and that's exactly, that's exactly what he did. So the name Lutheran is shorthand for believer of the Bible. Now, everyone claims to have the Bible, so you've got to have all these distinctions about, uh, about the infallibility of the scriptures and what does it teach about baptism and what does it teach about the gospel and the Lord's Supper and all this sort of stuff. So it just becomes a shorthand to kind of put all those things together. But then there's a lot of stuff that people say, well, you could follow Luther, then you've got to defend Luther for saying all this sort of stuff. And one of those things is, did Luther call Jesus an adulterer? And I want to talk about that. But we've got to go to the break. So we're going to go to a quick break now, and we'll be back to take up this question. What was Luther talking about when he says this? Christ was an adulterer for the first time with the woman at the well. So there you go. We'll talk about that when you get back from the break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Pastor Wolfmuller here, sorry for the interruption, but uh, an announcement here. We published a Martin Luther calendar for 2020. We got some old Lucas Cronach art and some, some quotations from Martin Luther that capture the distinction between law and gospel, and we, we published it as a calendar. You can find information about it at wolfmuller.co slash calendar. You can pick up your own copy from Lulu Publishing from, for $15.17. See what I did there? All that information is at wolfmuller.co slash calendar. You can preview it, see what it looks like. Pick up one for yourself and for your best friend and for your pastor. Back to the show. Welcome back to Cross Defense. Christ was an adulterer for the first time with the woman at the well. This is from Martin Luther's table talk recorded by, I can't remember, some guy. He again was an adulterer with Magdalene and still again with the adulterous woman in John 8, whom he, who he let off so easily. So the good Christ had to become an adulterer before he died. Now this is a really... So, so the accusation goes 
that Luther taught that Jesus was somehow a, a, a breaker of the Sixth Commandment, that he was an adulterer, that he committed adultery with someone. And this is, of course, blasphemy. I mean, this is Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was not a, a sinner. He was perfect in every way. He didn't break any of God's laws. In fact, the righteousness of Christ is that righteousness which is delivered to us in the doctrine of justification so that Jesus perfectly kept the Ten Commandments, and he gives that perfect keeping of the Ten Commandments to us. So that if Jesus was a lawbreaker, if he, had, if he could be guilty of breaking any of the commandments, then he could not be the Savior. I mean, it's so, that is so simple and, and so clear. But so the people say, well, what about what Luther says here? What does it mean? Well, first of all, we should not put our own sort of, I don't know, loose sexual immorality on Luther. Because to be alone with a woman, especially in the ancient world, and even in Luther's time, was to open yourself up to the accusation of being unfaithful. But there's something even more than that. I mean, that's a, a simple enough explanation, but there's something even more than that that's happening theologically. And I'd like to read you a couple of paragraphs, work through a couple of paragraphs with you from Luther's comments on Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Luther writes, Paul guarded his words carefully and spoke precisely. Here again, a distinction must be made. Paul's words clearly show this. For he does not say that Christ became a curse on his own account, but that he became a curse for us. Thus the whole emphasis is on the phrase, for us. For Christ is innocent so far as his own person is concerned. Therefore he should not have been hanged from the tree. But because, according to the law, every thief should have been hanged, Therefore, according to the law of Moses, Christ himself should have been hanged, for he bore the person of a sinner and a thief, and not of one, but of all sinners and thieves. For we are sinners and thieves, and therefore we are worthy of death and eternal damnation. But Christ took all our sins upon himself, and for them he died on the cross. Therefore it was appropriate for him to become a thief, and as Isaiah says, Isaiah 53 verse 12, to be numbered among thieves. Do you see that Jesus didn't ever steal anything, but he was numbered among, th he was called a thief. Why? Because he was carrying our sin. He was taking our guilt on himself. And he was suffering the consequence of our sin, of, of, of our breaking of God's law, of our thievery and our greed. He, was, he is the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, but on him is placed all of our sin and iniquity. Luther continues, And all the prophets saw this, that Christ was to become the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer, etc., that there has ever been anywhere in the world. But he is not acting in his own person now. Now he is not the Son of God born of a virgin, but he is a sinner who has and bears the sin of Paul, the former blasphemer, persecutor, and assaulter, of Peter, who denied Christ, of David, who was an adulterer and a murderer, and who caused the Gentiles to blaspheme the name of the Lord. 
In short, he has and bears all the sins of all men and his body, not in the sense that he has committed them, but in the sense that he took these sins committed by us upon his own body in order to make satisfaction for them with his own blood. Do you see the difference? Luther's saying that Jesus, and this is just the, the biblical doctrine, Luther's saying that, that Jesus didn't commit these sins. They, he, he did not commit adultery. David committed adultery. He did, not com, he did not commit blasphemy. Paul committed blasphemy. He did not commit murder. Moses committed murder. But in order to be, but, but in order to, to save us and to save them, Jesus takes that sin and he now suffers the consequence for it. God's anger. What, he, what Jesus is suffering on the cross is God is not angry with Jesus because he didn't do anything wrong. But he's taking all of the wrong that we have done and he's bearing that in our place. He's suffering that in our place. He's carrying that burden in our place. It's not like Jesus, like Luther saying that, that Jesus was walking around committing sin with people. No. I mean, of course not. He was perfect in every way. And, and Luther preaches this all the time. This is, you gotta be like, you have to be willfully ignorant of, of Luther's teaching to think that he, he would think something like this. Uh, is, here, I'll, I just wanna read a little bit more here. This, this is really good. The knowledge of, this knowledge of Christ, that he is, ex that, oh, let me go back even further. Uh, thus, a, uh, thus a magistrate regards someone as a criminal and punishes him if he catches him among thieves, even though the man never committed anything evil or worthy of death. Christ was not only found among sinners, but of his own free will and by the will of the Father. He wanted to be an associate of sinners having assumed the flesh and blood of those who were sinners and thieves and who were immersed in all sorts of sin. Therefore, when the law found him among thieves, it, it condemned and executed him as a thief. This knowledge of Christ and most delightful comfort that Christ became a curse for us to set us free from the curse of the law, of this the sophists deprive us when they segregate Christ from sins and sinners and set him forth to us only as an example to be imitated. In this way, they make Christ not only useless to us, but a judge and a tyrant who's angry because of our sin and who damns sinners. But just as Christ is wrapped up in our flesh and blood, so we must wrap him and know him to be wrapped up in our sin, our curse, our death, and everything evil. But this is a highly absurd and insulting thing to call the Son of God a sinner and a curse. If you want to deny, that's, this is the accusation against Luther. If you want to deny that he's a sinner and a curse, then deny also that he suffered, that he was crucified, that he died. For it is no less absurd to say, as our creed confesses and prays, that the Son of God was crucified and underwent torments of sin and death than it is to say that he's a sinner or a curse. But if it is not absurd to confess and believe that Christ was crucified among thieves, then it is not absurd to say as well that he was a curse and a sinner of sinners. Surely these words of Paul are not without purpose. Christ became a curse for us. And for our sake, God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Now this is a truly stunning text. 
Paul says, I'm going to go to it. Second Corinthians five. I've been reading Second Corinthians all morning this morning. What an absolutely stunning book this is! And right in the middle of it, we get to this, this, this fantastically beautiful theological part. Paul says, "Let me start back in verse eighteen. First, Second Corinthians five, verse eighteen. All of this, seventeen. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come." All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that Jesus is per perfect in every way and never commit. He, he, according to the law, he was absolutely righteous. He never broke any of the commandments. He did everything that the commandments required of him. So that Jesus and Jesus alone amongst everyone who's ever lived, Jesus alone is perfect. And yet God made him to be sin so that he takes all of your sin, all of your guilt, all of your shame, all of your breaking of the law, all of your covetousness and, and lying and lust and adultery and anger and murder and rebellion and blasphemy and, and despising of God's word and idolatry and all, he takes all of it. Every bit of your sin, and he puts it onto Christ. So much so that Christ is made sin. That's what St. Paul says, that he is made sin. And all of the wrath of God that you deserve and that I deserve, all of the anger of God, all of the holy justice of God, all of it falls on Jesus. And then his perfection and his righteousness, and his keeping of the law, his perfect purity in every way, that is given to you. This is what the old theologians called the great exchange. That Jesus takes your sin, your death, your deserved wrath of God, and you get his righteousness, and his perfection, and his peace, and his life, and his joy, and his comfort, all of it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the right, and listen to this, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. <laughs> the righteousness that the gospel delivers to us is not the righteousness of Adam and Eve before the fall. It's the righteousness of God. It's the perfection of Christ. And this is the gospel. And this, this is what Luther was preaching page after page after page. If Jesus was not the holy and innocent Lamb of God who committed sins in his person, if, 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 if Luther would have, would have taught that, then Jesus could have been the Savior. This is purpose, purposeful misunderstanding of Luther, and, and purposeful for two reasons. One, because you just want to dismiss the guy out of hand. But two, because in a demonic way you want to dismiss the the, the glorious comfort that it gives. 
that for King David, the murderer and the adulterer, Jesus was punished as a murderer and adulterer. For St. Paul, the blasphemer and persecutor, Jesus was punished as a blasphemer and persecutor. And for you too, I mean for every, for every sin that bounces around in your conscience, for every, for every, for, for everybody, every bit of guilt that troubles you, keeps you up at night, for all of it, Jesus suffered. And he, and he did so willingly because he wanted to give you his righteousness and his peace. So Jesus became your sin too to redeem you, to rescue you from the wrath of God, to, to bring you from the kingdom of darkness to his eternal light, to forgive you all your sins. God be praised. God be praised for the clarity of that great exchange. That everything dark of mine belongs to Jesus. And everything good of his, dear saints, that belongs to you. God be praised. Are you listening to Cross Defense? This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. It's been, oh, it's been a fast hour. Well, we talked about the angels. We talked about this accusation uh, from, from uh, of the people that Luther became a sinner. And we re remembered that theology for us is our joy and our comfort. I mean, that you can't find this stuff anywhere else. The love of God for sinners? You can't find it reading the, reading the newspaper, watching the weather. But it's there in the pages of Scripture. Well, God be praised. And may God bless you and keep you. We'll talk to you next week. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks again for being a Cross Defense podcast listener. God be praised for the time uh, together to rejoice in the Lord's Word. If there was something that you thought was particularly helpful, I'd love to hear from you. You can get a hold of me at wolfmuller.co slash contact. And if you think there was something good in the show for a friend or family member, don't forget to share it with them to talk about with it. That's what, you know, that's how the kingdom of God continues to come as we rejoice in the good news that Jesus is our Savior, the one who forgives our sins. And thanks again for listening. Uh, the Lord bless and keep you. We'll talk to you next week.